Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are diving into the mythos of the American West, starting with Texas, and some of the connections to the Ozarks. Most historians say that the myth of the West starts at the Alamo. What if we tell you that you have to go through the Ozarks to even get to the Alamo, much less the West? There's a lot more to cover than you may think. We will get back to that in a minute, but first we want to remind you the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or just about any other podcast platform. So the Alamo, how do you get to the Alamo from the Ozarks? There is an argument that short of events here in the Ozarks, there might never have been a an Alamo. There might never have been an American-led colonization of Texas and consequently the revolution. And of course, that's not even to mention the Texas cattle drives, uh, another migration during the Civil War, and a lot more. And that's before we get to the dark stories of murder and grave robbing. There are a lot of mostly forgotten facts behind the pop culture scenes and books and movies, and many could see these facts as pretty dark. I think that these facts often add depth of experience, both to American history and perhaps even more importantly, the folklore of the American mythos. We will discuss what came before the Alamo in a second uh, and what you thought was the beginning of the story of Texas. That's a lot more complicated than just Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie at the Alamo. But first we want to invite everyone to like, follow, etc. Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Plus, we encourage you to follow the podcast. We would like you to uh, we would like to invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe. You have you'll have to have your login information ready and join join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 per month. So come with us on investigations, deep dive research and topics that sometimes are too controversial for public view. The next 100 Facebook subscribers for Dark Ozarks will be enter entered in a drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first run copy of Dark Ozarks The Spooklight. Join today to be entered in the drawing. Why else should you subscribe to the private Dark Ozarks subscriber group? Yes, it does have a small subscription fee, but you receive exclusive content and behind the scenes info that's nowhere else. It also helps us bring more original content to Dark Ozarks and we appreciate everyone. Now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarks.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage everyone to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri in person and online on Facebook and their website, alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history and more, not to mention it's haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. 
We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. They have great beer and great food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, that building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. So getting to the Alamo from the Ozarks, I think that uh, one thing people start thinking about the, the myth of Texas um, as well as the West in general. And certain things come to mind. First of all, cattle drives, for instance. Um, we've all heard the stories of the cattle drives from Texas up to Kansas and on up to Omaha and St. Joseph. But that's not where they started. It's, it's not. And <clears throat> that the fact that there is an incredibly strong connection historically of driving cattle north or driving cattle um, mm -hmm. in some cases west from the Ozarks etc is, is is a connection that is very easy to overlook. It is and it really started in the early 1850s with the uh, California gold rush um, um, and um, basically what happened was that fellows went out to California and started noticing that cattle were in short supply yes in the mining fields so some came back to arkansas and um decided that they could make more money driving cattle to california and selling them out in the mining fields rather than prospecting and um there was something to that because cattle were bringing five to ten dollar a head in arkansas at the time and you could sell them for fifty dollars in california which was a big chunk of money at the time. And, and they would head out from Fort Smith. So this went on from the early 1850s and then the cow drives from Texas didn't start up until after the Civil War. So in some ways, Texas was the Johnny come lately. In that, in the, of course, there's a couple of things that really come to mind on this. One, of course, that for me really st stood out is that the Harrison area was actually one of the areas that cattle was was driven to to California. Mm -hmm. One of the mm, often overlooked aspects of the gold rush is that much of the great wealth that was to be had actually came in the form of selling necessities to the miners as opposed yeah. to the the, the the precious metals that were being mined. And so just that, that simple reality of supply and demand is, is interesting in and of itself. But then to think about the exceptionally daunting effort of driving uh, mm -hmm cattle herds from say Harrison, Arkansas to the gold fields of California is it's it's a lot to consider. The the men who undertook that, I, I think it's important not to overlook 
just the amount of grit and the amount of guts that it took to do that and then add on to it that in many cases these were 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 people who were doing it just to in the hopes that they could have money to make it through a couple of years well i mean that's that's very very true and when you talk about being hard um the you know they were driving cattle through indian territory through unsettled territory and even there was a southern route and a northern route and even though it was long it was used more it was longer um but um in the end um it was a easier route for the cattle and it would go through utah and actually during one of those cattle drives from arkansas led to the sort of the infamous um, massacre in Utah of the Fancher uh, party. And um, uh, it's, not, it's not clear whether the Fanchers knew that they were walking into uh, hostilities because the, um, basically the Mormons and their allies had um, just announced that they were uh, not inviting to other people coming through. And, but, and there's some circumstantial evidence that they might have been targeted because uh, a prominent Mormon had come back to Arkansas and been murdered um, just a few months earlier. And they probably didn't know about it. And, but uh, word was along the line that a party from Arkansas was coming through and that may have been part of the motive. Um, and it actually led to sort of a quote at that time, an international incident. So, you know, these cow drives were inherently dangerous. They were, and if memory serves, the, the Fancher uh, party actually went through uh, Beaver, Arkansas. Um, I, I think they may have. I, I would have. I, I think they did. It seems yeah. like I remember a, a, an aside note, not mm -hmm. that they were from Beaver, Arkansas, but they went through Beaver, Arkansas. And the, I, I, um, I believe so. For people who are going, why are you talking about Beaver, Arkansas? Where is that? Uh, it's just north of Eureka Springs, um, the, the resort city of small resort, Victorian resort city of Eureka Springs. Um, it is known for the Golden Gate Bridge of the Ozarks. Uh, which is a, a beautiful uh, suspension bridge, actually built approximately mid-century, mid-20th century, uh, but it's a beautiful suspension bridge uh, that crosses the river there. And uh, uh, also the, the uh, train is, is there as well. So there, it's, it's a very, very beautiful location, but it was a, a um, crossroads and crossing or a um, it has been an important um, stay way station on uh, on the old road for a very very long time. And some of the original buildings are still there. That's really neat, um, uh, and it's it, it's ironic how just more connections are made all the time as we go through these different subjects. But uh, and and another another aspect of sort of the image of Texas is, of course, the cowboy boot. 
Yes. <clears throat> My favorite. To tell people didn't come from Texas. Uh, the cowboy boot, as we know it, did not come from Texas. It came from Southeast Kansas, just on the edge of the Ozarks, actually. Um, and, and actually, when we think of cow drives from Texas, even when you get to the point of cow drives from Texas, you think of Abilene, et cetera. But Abilene was not the first cow town. It was Bastard Springs, Kansas, which is in the Ozarks. Yes, it is. Uh, with, <laughs> with some really, really fascinating uh, Civil War history as well, Baxter Springs, and uh -huh. uh, an immediate pre-Civil War history in terms of bleeding Kansas. Exactly. And not too far from there is uh, Coffeeville, Kansas, which um, has its own interesting history, but it was also um, pretty much the second cow town. And um, also right after the Civil War, they were pumping oil with oil rigs in the streets. And um, lots of cowboys coming through. It was a, it was a rail hub. Um, and so uh, the cowboys that did come up from Texas started getting customized boots. And basically, what we think of as a cowboy boot today is actually called the Coffeeville boot. Interesting. That was basically designed initially by John Kubine in his boot shop in Coffeeville, Kansas. Well, I'm I'm eternally grateful. Um, cowboy <laughs> boots are my, uh, my my footwear of choice on almost almost all situations, not in the gym, but pretty much everywhere else. And I can vouch for that. Yes, yes, I know you can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, recent, recent investigation uh, uh, that I, I did receive a, a very helpful reminder text. This is not trained to be wearing cowboy boots. And so I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I do try to take care of you. I know you do. I know you do. And I appreciate that. And and you are absolutely correct. It was not would not have been good terrain for cowboy boots. No, it would not have been fun. At least not unless I was on a horse. That's true. But but we weren't. So we were not. We were not. But that gives you but that's a good example of how the the image of Texas it, it was not necessarily born in Texas. And and I think something that is important is that many individuals who over, particularly over the, the, the 19th century, uh, helped to create the, the culture of Texas, and in some cases, the mythos of Texas, were closely tied with the Ozarks. Yes, very, very much so, um, including the grandfather of Texas. Yes. Mr. Moses Austin, and I find Moses to be uh, an extraordinarily interesting um, individual, one that in all, all fairness, history has for the most part overlooked. Really, I have to say the same and, and no slight to his son, Stephen, who's known as the father of Texas, um, but uh, just as far as everything he did and, and went through, uh, Moses 
is a very intriguing individual. He really is, um, and and very contributive to early Missouri history, mm-hmm. and an individual who really went up against enormous odds to accomplish what he did, and was was just an interesting and very human uh, character. And I yeah. I think one of the things I like about the the Moses Austin story is that much of his experiences and his exploits have not been either colored or discolored by um, American myth or um, folkloric embellishment because he has been largely overlooked. We're going to be discussing some characters who were very much impacted posthumously and sometimes not so posthumously by uh, their their press. Um, Moses did not Moses Austin did not uh, undergo that experience, and no. <clears throat> but things that he did um, were were right up there. And something that w- was very, I, I I feel like, and I'm I'm just curious to see your thoughts on this. But many of these characters that we're going to be dealing with, and we'll start with with Moses Austin. In case you're wondering, his son Stephen Austin is for whom Austin, Texas is named after. So mm-hmm. give, the, give the idea, give people the idea of the enormity really of, uh, of impact in terms of American culture and history. But that in, in many ways, the uh, the the efforts of settlement. We'll use Moses as a as a primary example. The efforts of settlement of entrepreneurship that we associate with civilian life. Uh, we associate with peacetime. We associate with just going about your day to day and doing business. The level of endeavor that these men were undertaking was far beyond just doing business or just making money. They, their, their lives, they were putting their lives on the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were putting the lives of their families on the line. In many ways, it resembles uh, a military campaign. I think that's a good analogy. <clears throat> yeah, it, it really is. Our, um, our, our ability to look at the, like our, our way that we think of business or doing business or expanding a business is so far removed from the efforts that it's, it's, it's difficult for us to really wrap our heads around just what these men actually accomplished. That's true. For one thing, um, it would be impossible to do a lot of these things today because it would be viewed as unethical business practices or (laughs) (laughs) monopolies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Take that for what you will, good, good, bad, and different. There's there's good and bad in everything, as they say. Um, But uh, one thing I like about Moses' story is, you know, there there are... um, people further back in in the family tree that also were influential but he did not start out with a lot of money you know some of these characters that we talk about 
were wealthy to start with. He really wasn't. Um, and um, started out in the dry goods business with his brother in Philadelphia. Yes. But then went into mining <laughs> in, <Yeah>. in Pennsylvania <laughs> there, in the 1700s. There, there is some, some key um, strategy that it that it is clear that Moses Austin employed. There's uh, a decent indication that some of that strategy was his marriage initially. Yes. Um, he he married Maria Brown in on September twenty eighth, seventeen eighty five, and her parents uh, were wealthy and were in mining at that time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's certainly suggestive that that gave the, gave the brothers, um, Moses, Austin, and his brother, important to note, he named his son after his brother. So there's two Stevens, uh, mm -hmm. his brother, Stephen, the impetus uh, at that point. And, and again, take it for what anybody will, but there is a, a, a very exciting American dream quality to this idea that you start out working a dry goods store in Philadelphia, then you transition to a dry goods store in a branch office, if you will, in, in Richmond, and then go in and get married, go into mining, get married, and then go into mining. Um, and in a comparatively short amount of time, mm -hmm. you're, you're contracting a league of land with uh, the Spanish government in, a, uh, in the upper, what would become the upper Louisiana purchase, uh, the upper Louisiana territory, modern day Missouri. Yes. And, and getting attacked you know, by the Osage. Yeah, but you know, very bold, you know, when you think about it, pretty bold action on his part to, to seek it and obtain it. And so basically came to Missouri um, to uh, area of Bretton Mine, which uh, he promptly renamed as Potosi. Yes. Um, base, you know, um, in homage to the, the mining center in Bolivia, I think. Isn't it, it Bolivia? Is. Yes, I it is. <clears throat> and you know, and I also think that it's, um, you know, so some, some notable points. Uh, Moses was originally from Durham, Connecticut, and he, his, his father was, among other things, a tavern owner and a tailor, uh, mm -hmm. basically a small town businessman. And something that is, is noted in a number of the historical accounts is that Moses didn't get a lot of schooling, but he fell in love with reading. And mm -hmm. it, is, it is very easy to think of uh, American settlers, uh, American colonists, the colonies, et cetera, as being um, old timey, old fashioned, backwards, so on and so forth. In so many cases, that was not the case. These were, mm -hmm. uh, it was a young nation. It was being uh, expanded by very young, very ambitious men. And in so many cases, they were extraordinarily literate and surprisingly well-versed on 
what was going on around the world. Yes, and he certainly was. And um, and basically, um, you know, jump started the mining industry in the Ozarks single handedly. Yeah. He he did. Um, something that it, it's it's easy to look at, particularly in the the Austin family. Um, a number of financial setbacks mm-hmm. took place throughout their 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 history. And it is easy to dismiss those those setbacks, but I think it also speaks to the um, if you, if you look at it from a from a uh, almost a military through a military lens that and I, and I suspect they largely were approaching these projects similarly that this was a this was a war this was a fight they were going to. Uh, and they were going against great odds. There were a number of reasons why any of these endeavors um, could potentially fail. Yes, but they kept going. That's uh, and I think, of course, that's that's the key. Is that you know uh, several times um, you know they, things happen that you would think, okay, you know, my, most people would have just given up at that point. And they were but, now and. and it, as a, as a testament to sort of this uh, overarching ambition, uh, the, the Austins did seem to have a penchant for naming places after themselves. Um, That's true. <laughs> the, their, their mining um, town slash colony, so to speak, in uh, Wythe County, Virginia, was named Austinville. Mm-hmm. Was they they were actually um, contracted to provide the uh, the materials for the Virginia State Capitol building, which was designed by Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm. and their project failed, and the yeah. the the larger mining project of Austinville largely failed with it, led to a falling out between Moses and his brother Stephen, and precipitated Moses transition through to to Missouri was mm-hmm. in Missouri then um, but to uh, to start this mining operation slash land grant under the the king of Spain uh, by by way of uh, an incredibly arduous journey through Kentucky mostly in several feet of snow yes <laughs> I've held both ways <laughs> yes um, and that there's a there's a very interesting, um, and and it should also be noted uh, that well, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but his son Stephen seemed to be a bit more pragmatic and definitely more diplomatic than Moses. Yeah. Uh, Moses was renowned for his temper and his uh, his. Uh, fiery responses that were not always thought through, which were noted in uh, letters in, with his wife, mm-hmm. uh, among others. And uh, he, he managed, it's funny because in that, I, I, I really get the feeling that, that Stephen, based on some of his son's writings, it is pretty evident that his son held his father in enormous regard. Yeah. Uh, and I believe in, in great love. But I think that 
growing up around Moses that it's pretty evident that Stephen learned how to do diplomacy by watching his father and not doing that. Right. I mean, to Stephen's credit, I think he was able to look at a situation and say, love my dad, love what he's doing. Here's what it could have done differently that might have worked better and take a note. Um, and not a lot of people can do that. Uh, no. So, I mean, that that says a lot for Stephen. Um, but, um, you know, uh, coming through after the War of 1812, um, economy started uh, changing and it brought on problems again as, and as the economy was weakening and there was a, a dip in demand for lead uh, during that time, Moses and Stephen decided to get into finance and they founded the Bank of St. Louis. Yes. Um, which had a couple of consequences. One was that it actually helped solidify St. Louis as a major commercial financial center, particularly on the Mississippi, um, which really had a, has had a lot to do in the last 200 years with it continuing to be a major city. Um, the other is that unfortunately in the economic panic of 1819, which was basically the first great depression that America endured, um, that they lost most of their money again. Yes. <clears throat> and, and it's, oh, go ahead. But I, I find it ironic though, that part, part of the, part of the problem or part, part of the cause of the panic of 1819 was land speculation um, out West, here out West. And the fact that the government was selling land to farmers on credit. Yes. And then after the war, as the economy slowed down, they couldn't pay those notes. And that's what partly what fueled it. It's kind of ironic because Moses, through his life, makes these schemes or these, these ventures based on land speculation. Yes. <clears throat> yes. It is a vicious dog chasing his tail in a larger sense mm -hmm. um, in that regard. There was uh, something that a couple of, for me, just an interesting side note in terms of history. Uh, Moses Austin, to a degree, took uh, Schoolcraft, uh, the mineralogist and, mm -hmm. uh, and journaler of the Ozarks, um, to a degree under his wing and seems to have become a very close colleague in the sense that he, he wrote a number of key letters to Schoolcraft at various times, in some cases giving him um, direction, but in other cases really opening up his heart in terms of his despair, his lowest moments. Uh, and this was during that, during, particularly during that uh, uh, post-1819 panic. And perhaps uh, a little, mm, really, it's a bit 
sad because we're, we're also looking at this documentation not very long before Moses would die. Very true, very true. Um, yeah, because he died in 1821, I believe. And it was, it was, he really expended everything in his, in really, I think, in his existence. I, it's reading the, the accounts and reading some of his letters, it really speaks to me in unique ways when you, when you realize how much of a toll these projects had taken on him. Yeah, um, and I think that's one thing that, you know, sometimes we don't think about. It's easy, you see it, I think you say, in the faces of a president as they age very quickly in office, and certainly Abraham Lincoln is a good example of that. But a lot of these figures um, just went through a lot of stress and agony going through everything they did. and it's easy to forget and what they did and going through that actually uh, benefited the entire area. It, it did because it, it's, and, and, you know, and again, these exploits, these expansions have to be understood within context mm -hmm. because it's, it's very easy to look at various aspects, a contextually, and deride these individuals for a variety of contemporary reasons. Oh yeah. But at the same time, in many cases, were it not for the the work of these of these folks, um, you know, we're enjoying the infrastructure that they created. Very much so, and and this is it's certainly an example because while he's at this low point um, and uh, really taking a toll on his health and his mental uh, outlook, um, he endeavored for another large venture, which was the coup de grace. It was, it was. And in what is, again, uh, to me, quite frankly, emotional, a, an endeavor, Moses Austin, Moses Austin's greatest success was something that he ultimately would give his life to and never see it occur. Exactly. He, he, he never... He never got to make that final trip or, or see what happened. And that was to get another land grant from yes. the Spanish. And, and his, his work, of course, the Louisiana Territory uh, had been shifting back and forth underneath French and Spanish rule. Uh, in the meantime, Mexico was fomenting rebellion and independence. Mm -hmm. But before that, 
something that had happened. And it's, it's important to understand uh, that Moses Austin had really had settled roots and become a Missourian. Um, mm -hmm. Although Missouri wasn't actually a state yet, but in terms of the location, because he had been in present day Missouri, having founded Potosi, uh, was uh, at, at this point largely handed a lot of the management of the lead mines over to his son, Stephen. Mm -hmm. And in theory, theory, uh, had it not been for the, uh, the economic panic of 1819, could have been enjoying his retirement at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, the economic panic which wiped out their, their finances, made it impossible for him to do that. And, you know, at, at, at one point, there's even an account a little bit, a bit earlier that his wife, Maria, who never, it seems, ever really adapted to life on the frontier, had returned to Philadelphia, taken, temporarily taken the kids with her uh, to ostensibly enroll them in school back east so they could get a proper education. And she finds herself stranded for something to the tune of two years because they don't have enough money for her to afford transit back home. Right. Yes. So, you know, there, there were many ups and downs. And, uh, and, and, and then <laughs> Moses makes the, uh, uh, probably the mistake of writing, letting her know that there'd been a, a poisoning assassination attempt on his life at Durham Hall. Uh, mm -hmm. while all this is going on and meanwhile the uh the the aristocratic quote-unquote um friends back home in philadelphia have no idea that they're out of money yes or or or, or to mention that the, you know at various times that he was under attack by those age indians um yes cannons to defend the, the mines <laughs> yes it, um, of course, the uh, the opening of the of the Potosi lead mines was uh, in direct affront to to the Osage. Well, it it it, it was, and then um, most of the residents of the area were French, and they mm -hmm. declined to come to his aid. Yes, I, a fact that Moses Austin did not forget. No, no, he, um, Moses did have a long memory, it seems. <laughs> Which I, I can't blame him. Um, but there, there's also some, some pretty strong indicators that his incredibly strong personality did not necessarily make diplomacy with a number of these people easy. Yes, um, I, I think he was viewed by, by some of the, those settlers as a, you know, uh, upstart, you know, who had just arrived and they've been there at this point for, you know, 100, 150 years. So, <laughs> uh, a certain amount of, uh, you know, looking at, looking at some of this potentially as a liability uh, rather than a benefit. And yes. uh, it's believed that he actually borrowed a cannon or, or obtained a cannon from uh, uh, the Spanish. Mm -hmm in order to uh, to respond to the threat of approximately 30 Osage warriors. 
it's sad to me there there are um, uh, 19th century photos um, of Durham Hall near present mm -hmm. day and it, it is a admittedly magnificent and very unique uh, architecturally unique structure yes an outbuilding apparently does still remain but mm -hmm. the uh, uh, the Durham Hall, Durham Hall itself is no more. It makes me sad because it's, it looks like an incredible building. It, it does. It, it looks like it, it was a fantastic building. But and, uh, kind of larger than life like its owner, I think. <laughs> I, I would tend to agree. And then coming to this, this final, final endeavor, um, is that Austin travels, uh, and, and travel is such an interesting word. I mean, we're, we're at this point, he's in his early 50s, considering what he's gone through, uh, the sort of the state of, you know, the, the rate that individuals during that era aged, he mm -hmm. is in essence an elderly man. Yes. And, taking on the, uh, you know, the, the equivalent uh, of essentially hiking in many cases uh, from the, the, essentially from St. Louis to San Antonio. Yes. Uh, with the intent of hiking all the way down and all the way back through a, a variety of conditions <clears throat> in order to plead his case and obtain a land grant. And the, the process was fraught with difficulty uh, had he not run into uh, actually a uh, Dutch diplomat by the name of Baron Bas de Bastrop, he would have been turned down. Yes, but they had dealings in the past, if I recall correctly. Yes, yes, they were, they were business associates. He was in New Orleans. And I also found this very interesting because, it, you know, despite the, the economic issues that, of course, that Moses Austin and his contemporaries went through, they were high rollers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they were they were they were big time capitalists um, of, of early of the early United mm -hmm. States. And, you know, they they had a lot of business dealings in New Orleans and. Uh, <clears throat> just just interesting because I, I think we have a very narrow view of the population from the early days of the United States. It's easy to it's easy to do that. And you know, just to in you know unconsciously create certain stereotypes. Uh, <clears throat> simple farmers hewing out the wilderness. Um, hoping that they could possibly have a log cabin, those sorts of things. And those stories are real, but, you know, these individuals who are extremely well-traveled, have contacts uh, at considerable distance, et cetera, and have the ambition that you're going to hike from St. Louis to San Antonio with the intent of getting a land grant from Spain. Maybe. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I, I really, 
going over Moses's life, I just, I keep coming, getting this feeling that once he set his, his sights on an endeavor, he really didn't think that it wasn't going to happen. I, well, I think you, he had, he had to take that view in order to have done these things. These, these were not, you know, modest or conservative steps that he took. And so if you no. doubted it, you know, you, you would have shot yourself in the foot. Yes. And, <laughs> and, but by the same token, I, I, I imagine even if we don't have it in letters that he had a plan B if that didn't work. Mm-hmm. That's, you know. That, and, and this is also on the heels of uh, the long expedition, which w- was basically mm, an unauthorized military campaign into Spanish territory. True. So there's a, a considerable amount of uh, um suspicion when he reaches san antonio um right with good cause (laughs) uh, yeah yeah very very much so the um the his ultimately thanks to uh bastrop he is successful or Mm -hmm. or believes himself to be strongly successful um, begin making plans to settle 300 families in Texas with this land grant, and then um, returns home via the old Spanish military road, which in essence was San Antonio to Nacogdoches, and then from Nacogdoches to Nacogdoches, uh, Louisiana, and then on up right. uh, into the Ozarks, and across the Ozarks, and to present-day St. Louis. It was done during the winter heavy rains, very cold. Uh, at, at one point, one of his traveling companions, he becomes aware that one of his traveling companions is stealing livestock. Mm-hmm. And in the process uh, of this, this, this man basically robs them and leaves them to die in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and despite that, despite the fact that you have a, an elderly man in poor health in the winter swimming rivers to get home uh, in in the hope that all of this is going to come about he does arrive home he makes it back to hazel run which is essentially the this home uh of his daughter and he has pneumonia yeah I mean, really, if you recount that, you would think you were talking about Davy Crockett or Jim Bowie. Yes, these, these, and it, there's a, to me, there's a, a lasting sadness, uh, a sense of melancholy within this expansive ambition. Uh, it's, it's 1820, it becomes 1821, he's coming back in winter of 1821, and in the in the process, something and something that he becomes aware of as he's attempting to recover at Hazel Run is that he's not going to. He knows that he's dying. Yeah. And and that's you know that's you know so close but yet so far away um, to his goal. Yes, 
And I, I can't help but think how much he would have wanted to resist that because it, it, it is clearly evident that he wanted to make this happen. Well, and he lingered about six months. So I think that's an, uh, you know, an indication of how much he resisted. Yes. Uh, when, it, when it finally becomes evident, and, it, and we know this because of his letters, uh, he pens a letter to his son who has actually, and at this point, um, they are largely financially destitute following um, mm -hmm. the panic. Everything is riding on this land grant. Mm -hmm. uh, with the possibility of this land grant. <clears throat> uh, his son, uh, pretty much at one point earlier before the, the trip to Texas, uh, Moses was arrested uh, for failing to pay his debts, which I think is something that is, we often overlook about this, this era in American history, that debtor's prison was a real thing. It, it was, and... and... I can speak to that as being an attorney. Ironically, people fear that now uh, often will come to court uh, in, in a suit where they're being sued for money and be afraid they're going to jail. Mm -hmm. And uh, we haven't had debtors prisons for a very long time, but in 1820, we did. Yes. And it's something that in the historical note that uh that that in in many cases appears to have been driving particularly the poorer classes uh of americans into new territory with an attempt to either escape debt or the hope that this new endeavor would somehow give them enough money to pay off debt yes um you know i i think uh Debt is quite a motivator in all ages, but in 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 that time, it motivated um, westward expansion in many cases. <laughs> it's and and that at this point, the the all of the equipment, the lead mines, the Potosi lead mines, etc., had been sold off uh, to cover yeah. uh, debts. Another thing that is that is interesting and. <clears throat> we're like, well, why, why, why have they borrowed so much money? Uh, or why have they taken on so much credit? Um, money was not necessarily readily available or even existent in much of in the, the, the new expansion. And so right. going into debt or obtaining credit on a large scale, in many cases, was the only way that they could do these projects. Very true. I mean, that's, I mean, it's very true. And you were, you know, we, you were still uh, a territory here. Uh, this is in the infancy of the national banking system. Yes. You often had currency issued by various state banks. Mm -hmm. um, and this is also you know, during the time that I think the first U.S. bank had, had had been dissolved and they hadn't quite started the second one, which then Andrew Jackson um, uh, fought against again. Um, and uh, Jackson has a lot of connections to a lot of the people involved uh, in this story from the Ozarks to the Alamo, uh, ironically. Um, yeah. 
And so um, the entire financial system of the time is a lot different than what we're used to. Yes, it is. And um, by, by this point, son Stephen had traveled to New Orleans uh, to begin the process of uh, becoming a practicing lawyer. Mm-hmm. And Austin, uh, Moses Austin, at, on his deathbed, writes to his son, making his official last request that Stephen dedicate his life to, quote, prosecuting the enterprise he has commenced. Yes. And Stephen was not necessarily enthusiastic about doing so. No, it's uh, it's it's pretty evident initially, and and I, I think that, and, and probably for the the betterment of the Texas Revolution, that Stephen does not seem Stephen Austin does not seem to have the fiery, bombastic, over the top personality <laughs> of his father. Heard. And and it's it's pretty evident that uh, that because of that, um, Stephen was able to navigate Mexican politics and uh, Anglo-Texan relations in ways that it's it's pretty evident that if Moses had lived and decided to take that on, he probably would have been a revolution unto himself. <laughs> the revolution would have started sooner <laughs> yeah. and it would have just been moses you know pushing a cannon uh, <laughs> across the field <laughs> and it's anybody's guess who <laughs> at whom it would have been aimed <laughs> fair fair <laughs> <laughs> so as as it happens you know he passes right about the time that missouri became a became a state yes Yes. Um, but then, unfortunately, you know, uh, sadly, that that is not the end of Moses' story. <laughs> no, no, it is not. Texas came back to haunt him in a way, <laughs> <laughs> in, a, in a rather literal way. Um, <laughs> Moses Austin was initially interred at Hazel Run, his 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 daughter's estate. Yes. Um, he was later the the remains were were later moved to the old Presbyterian Cemetery in Potosi where, mm -hmm. spoiler alert, they still remain. Well, uh, despite the e best efforts of Texas. Yes, or certainly uh, so some individuals associated with the, uh, with the State Cemetery of Texas, um, which the, the State Cemetery of Texas was founded in 1851 um, as the, 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 the burying ground for notable Texans. And it's an interesting in this aspect because there, there seems to have been a point of pride after the establishment of the cemetery to begin working hard uh, to collect those notable Texans rather than simply receive them as they passed. Yes, um, uh, whether their family agreed to it or not. <laughs> Or in some cases, simply waiting out the next of kin. <laughs> if uh, if the next of kin did did not consent 
and uh, mm-hmm. in having their their family members' remains dug up and moved um, to uh, to the Texas State State Cemetery. So what we what we have is uh, in 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 essence a local businessman by the name of Lewis Kemp who began leading the effort to collect notable personalities uh, posthumously and one that yes and 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 rather you know bear in mind this is the early 20th century at this point um the camp was camp had was was ambitious um Mm because he he ultimately had about 70 graves 70 notable dead dug up and moved uh to the texas state cemetery one that was on his list to be collected was moses austin in Mm -hmm. who was lying at rest in potosi missouri and as the story seems to be pretty verified uh, individuals on a <laughs> reminds me of the Blues Brothers on a mission from God uh, <laughs> <A> mission from <laughs> Texas. <laughs> have nearly the same thing and uh, have, uh, arrive um, according to one record on the on the morning of April 21st 1938 in the cemetery in Potosi to uh, pick up Moses and take him to his new home <laughs> but nobody bothered to uh, check with Potosi as to how they felt about this. Yeah. So literally, you know, someone comes across three men with crowbars chipping away at his grave at his vault. <laughs> yes. Um, the, 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 the individual overseeing the work uh, was apparently Thurlow B. Weed, an undertaker from Texas who claimed to be on official business, um, which was not technically untrue. Right. Just whether or not it was valid, you know, as far as the state of Missouri goes. <laughs> and I, I think that it, to me, it's, it's very interesting. Of course, this is 1938. This is, we're, we're well within the quote unquote modern age at this point. Um, <laughs> but we're really seeing, um, this is only, one year before World War, beginning of World War II, um, but we're really seeing <laughs> some of these uh, intense state rivalries and you know states existing as sovereign nations, sort of, uh, <clears throat> and with with the appropriate state pride. Something that I I do find fascinating. I have a lot of respect for. Is it whereas much of the rest of the of the nation, especially after following the Civil War, was in some cases quickly and in some cases very slowly adapted to the idea that our patriotism and our allegiance is to the nation, not to our state. And I can say, having grown up in a in a clearly Yankee state, uh, you can you can have an appreciation for being from Illinois, but beyond that, it's just kind of a existent place uh, within the nation that Texas has obviously resisted. 
Well, as 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 the myth of Texas tells you, they have. Yes, <laughs> and, and this now, is just but, proof. <laughs> and, and as we as we continue, as we get into um, you know some of these other characters who are, are of crucial importance to to not only the Ozarks, uh, Missouri, Arkansas, or both, and uh, and then also Texas, there is of course great folkloric momentum that is built around these personalities but digging into their their actual exploits their real personalities you can see why uh their their lives became fodder for the mythos that's true that's true having a bigger than life personality lends itself to the mythos and in pop culture it does um, in, suffice in, it to say, but suffice it to say that um, the Texas invaders were repelled, yes, not once but twice. <laughs> yes, and uh, and no no grave robbing occurred. Ultimate, no successful grave robbing occurred, and uh, Moses Austin not only remains at rest, but now encased in cement. Yes, um, but I find it interesting. Not only, you know, not only Kemp and the Undertaker went through this, but then the governor of Texas interceded, trying to uh, bluff, basically bluff his way, <laughs> telling Potosi they had to turn over the body. Yes, and there were lawsuits over it, and. He did not prevail, and that's when they encased the tomb in cement. <laughs> yes, <laughs> just so, <laughs> so rather tongue in cheek. Potosi has someone um, I've read. You know that they they joke that uh, Potosi is the one city that has repelled attack from the state of Texas. <laughs> oh, I I think that's I think that's reasonable. I really do. I really do. And interestingly enough, all all over an individual that the American mythos completely overlooked. Ironically, yes. Ted just wanted to change that apparently, but <laughs> it but at that point, uh, at the at the point of of Moses's death, the the story really shifts to Stephen, who had spent uh, the the bulk of his life as a technically as a Missourian, yes, um, and and including a, a stint as uh, as an elected lawmaker, mm -hmm. um, as well as having worked hard with his father to obtain the uh, you know the charter process for the Bank of St. Louis. Yes, and then basically, you know, and then he had pivoted, like you said, to go to New Orleans to practice law um, in the aftermath of the economic panic and pivots to then recruit 300 families and they leave from South, you know, Southern Missouri. Uh, one of the departure points was West Plains. Um, and ultimately, before it was all over with, uh, he had a colony of over 900 families 
Yes. And uh, And um, dealing with massive tracts of land. Yes, um, just enormous amounts of land. And he was basically the impresario. He was the emperor, basically, of this area. (laughs) Yes. And And referred to as impresario. His father would have would would have loved the title, I think. I I think so. I really I I can see uh, impresario uh, Moses Austin having a very nice ring to it for 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 Moses. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and from from a a San Antonio region plantation. Mm-hmm. And, and and the majority of those families, the the original three hundred, the old three hundred, which is a key and crucial part of the 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 reality of making Texas, um, were from southern states. The mm-hmm. uh, the the latitude, the land, the the uh, etc. All ultimately, and and to a large degree under under Stephen Austin's guidance was became plantations and, yes. and farms. Uh, it was it was an agrarian uh, society and you guys know where I'm going with this. It was a, a an economy that was dependent upon slavery as well during that time. Yes. And um, he Stephen Austin had a an easy relationship with slavery it appears from his writings that he hoped for its abolition in time yes which Uh, which might have surprised a lot of texans and and we see something very similar we'll we'll get to him in a moment but we definitely see something similar with sam houston um, yes in in that the, and the, you know this is it's, it is a difficult subject across the, all, no matter what way you attempt to look at it but a, a great deal of individuals were were forced to view these these types of issues from a pragmatic and economic standpoint while at the same time they were ethically opposed yes um, you know and it's uh, it's always easy to condemn from the distance of time, um, and it, one always hopes that you know would make you would make choices that are in line with how you feel today, and that is that's hard when you look at history because it, you were dealing with. A different time period doesn't make it any more right. No, no, it does not. But it does help to. It is crucially important to understand these situations from within the context of the decade or the era or the time, and 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 contextualize that process across the board. Now. Um, Austin um, proved to be extremely diplomatic in terms of interacting mm-hmm. with Mexican government up to a point. Until he was arrested. Until he was arrested. Um, and, and I think it's, it's ironic from, from everything in regards to his um, 
writings to his actions leading up to this this point right before the revolution in in the in the mid 1830s that Stephen Austin did everything within his power to moderate the Anglo-Texans to mm-hmm. prevent revolution and that his goal was to see a successful colony of Americans, a colony of US, former US citizens existing successfully under Mexican rule in the present mm-hmm. day Texas. And that it's, it's clear even to the point that many of the, uh, the Texas settlers were angry at Stephen Austin for his diplomacy, for his insistence mm-hmm. on peace, on uh, negotiation, on uh, working with the Mexican government rather than going to war against them, all the way up until he is uh, arrested and held for a considerable amount of time without trial. And I just, I'm, I'm curious as the, in the individuals who made the diplomatic misstep of arresting probably the one guy who could have prevented revolution in this case. Well, you know, hindsight is 2020. Uh, <laughs> and in that, in the, I, ironically, they arrested because they were afraid that he was uh, planning a revolution and he yes. actively was trying to avoid it, ironically. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there, there were cross wires somewhere that, that led to all that. I guess a, a nice bit of trivia too, um, when we're talking about the Texas myth is that Stephen Austin himself actually did um, pretty much establish what became the Texas Rangers. Yes, he did. And yes. uh, that was in 1823, um, a command of um, quote, Rangers for the common defense of the colony. and there's an unbroken line between that establishment and then the Texas Rangers themselves. So um, definitely a large slice of Texas myth there um, in pop culture. Um, very, very much so. And, it, and, and of course the, the work of the Rangers would heavily extend into just the the realities of the old west the realities of the of the western mythos but then the realities of of things like indian territory which would later become oklahoma indian territory um really uh, onward i mean it was the texas rangers that uh, took out bonnie and clyde yes so yeah it's uh and um uh, <clears throat> Young. But but again, um, he, his ultimate faith is very similar to his father. He, you know, he lives through the revolution, through the revolution, just just long enough to know that they're independent. He survived three months beyond the Alamo, um, yeah. in, in, and basically on his deathbed of pneumonia. Yes, at his yeah. sister's. <laughs> yes. The same sister, isn't it? I think it's the same sister, is it? It is quite likely. That that, uh, their father died at her home, but I think she had gone to Texas and 
and um and you know on his deathbed you know basically makes a statement that you know you know at least texas is now independent yes and so and and along with that the these quotes it i, I think something that can be said for you know it's is easy particularly from the overarching and exploitive uh, branding, so to speak, of manifest destiny. It's easy to paint this portion of American history with with very broad brush strokes. But in something that we see with Moses, something that we see with Stephen, is even by their own letters, a perhaps even you you would normally say an almost religious zeal but i would say a a beyond religious zeal that they seem to have been compelled to create these things driven is driven is a mild word for it um it just was going to be <laughs> so to speak just this this sheer force of will that yeah. proved indomitable but also ultimately destroyed them physically physically yes and in in such similar ways it's it's real eerie um yes for Both father's deaths in yeah. 1821 and 1836 well and, and Stephen was only in his I think mid forties when he passed. Correct. So. Uh, he had suffered from malaria, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, his his long stint in the Mexican prison system had not helped. No. No. But he he certainly is remembered as the father of Texas. Yes. Um, and appropriately so, I believe. I I, I do too. I I believe that as well. Um, and then I guess that brings us to Sam Houston. I love the history of Sam Houston. Yes. I, I really, really do. Uh, what, uh, I'll, I'll, um, I'll throw out a, a couple of things that to me were <laughs> huge standouts about Sam. And I think really created this larger than life, uh, persona that that i think is very warranted and the first now we, we we're going to deal with a couple of big characters here sam houston being one davy crockett being another that mm -hmm. really uh i think embody the uh the teenage ideals of so many young men they basically want to run off and do their own thing well, that's very true, um, and and that they did. Um, yes, yes, definitely. Um, at sixteen, he he ran away, mm -hmm. and, but uh, not not uh, not Helter Skelter ran away. Um, Sam essentially went and joined the Cherokee. He did um, with Chief uh, John Jolly, um, and um, 
it's very interesting because he, he seemed to have a very genuine uh, love of the Cherokee people uh, yes. and understanding of them, um, which comes into play with some of the things in his life. Um, and, um, but by the same token, you know, he, he did that and then he went, he went home, although he never lived with his family again and taught school for a year. <laughs> yes. know, I mean, just all kinds of things like this are very interesting. Um, and served in the war of 1812, um, under Thomas Hart Benton, actually. Right. Yes, I saw that. Just a little connection to the Ozarks, to Missouri. <laughs> I know. And uh, and we'll get to this, but uh, Sam's brother uh, developed a very strong connection with the Ozarks. Yes, yes. Um, and, and certainly his, his, his brother has a little darker side in, you know, to uh, to his story, at least one chapter that I, I found interesting. Um, I guess we could throw that out. It's interesting, um, Sam Houston um, ultimately uh, as an adult had very little to do with his family. Correct. Uh, his parents, uh, his siblings, in, including his brother John they they you know had um dealings but later on felt kind of fell out and Sam felt like his family would use him right yes. basically uh but he was very interested in um caring for his nieces and nephews ironically and Again, you know, just coming back to something that you, you've already noted, but his association with the Cherokee is essentially becoming as much as uh, someone of Scots-Irish descent can become Cherokee, he did. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it played a role throughout his life, really. Um, you know, after the, after, uh, the War of 1812, um, he became a sub Indian agent under Andrew Jackson. Mm -hmm. And um, he actually um, helped resettle Indians into Arkansas. And uh, <laughs> actually, then he had a falling out with um, Jackson because. Yes the government didn't provide supplies for the relocation as promised. And so um, uh, that, that soured him and, and on Jackson. It, it did. Now, it's something that, you know, serving, he did serve in the, uh, in the Creek Indian War. Mm -hmm. And that really speaks to if, if you're unfamiliar with the diplomatic or lack of diplomatic ties that existed at that time, um, essentially going, becoming Cherokee and serving in, in the U.S. Army against the Creeks made sense because they're yeah. 
long-standing hostility between the Cherokee and the Creek tribes. Right. Right. Although some people might find that confusing, but at the time that would have made sense. Would it would have absolutely made sense. And then, you know, these, he was elected to the sixth governor of Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, was later elected as the seventh governor of Texas. Yeah. Uh, he was quite comparatively quite young, comparatively speaking, when he became um, sixth governor of Tennessee. And I believe he resigned his governorship after his very short-lived marriage collapsed. I believe, I, I believe that's when that happened, yes. And that, it, that, it, that his, his very short first marriage was um, a, a great um, social and political embarrassment to him. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, you know, comparatively um, much longer that that Houston then leaves Tennessee uh, and goes to Arkansas and is, mm-hmm. is essentially following his Cherokee family. Yes, yeah. Um, and um, and um, is ultimately joined by his brother John. Yes. Now, interestingly, John had an interesting story on the way to Arkansas um, because he was in Tennessee, married with four children, and he had an interesting twist on the old, we left for cigarettes and never came back. Um, (laughs) He faked his death. (laughs) He faked his death by drowning, no less, in the Mississippi at Memphis. Yeah, and quote was buried in a pauper's grave. And now I'm not sure if anyone was buried in that. If someone was buried in that grave, I wonder who it was. But right, uh, he turned up in Norfolk, uh, Arkansas. <laughs> right, <laughs> without wife or children. <laughs> Correct, and then. <laughs> Obviously, this type of thing happens today, even now, but certainly at this era in American history, it was, it was a lot easier to disappear and reinvent yourself. It was. It, it was. And, and we see that happening um, comparatively regularly. It, we, we do. It, we do in this series. We really do. <laughs> although that this is one of the more dramatic ways of doing it i have to admit i i agree i agree and it's of course uh ultimately sam houston's associations with the cherokee and their transition to arkansas and then into indian territory modern day oklahoma is what puts Mm -hmm. him into proximity with texas yes yes um and then as they kind of say that the rest is history. <laughs> it's, and then, you know, the, these in, individuals, um, again, something that I found very fascinating, the, the crossover between um, 
between dry goods and, and military service. Um, <laughs> the crossover between what to us looks like very perhaps mundane, even just everyday business type of life, and then a rapid pivots into things like military service, combat, uh, and then rapid pivots into, for example, law or um, or politics. And in, in the case, the early years of the nation, oftentimes very high level politics. Yes, yes. Um, and, um, you know, some people talk about social mobility being limited, more limited now. And in some senses it is, I think in part just because of the larger amount of population, but um, the sort of a common denominator as you hinted at before is this force of nature personality. Agreed. I, I think that that, and I think that in perhaps having, we, we can assume that many of these individuals grew up with, with stories, with family histories, even with perhaps in a certain ancestral memory or simply an unknowing that their uh, family backgrounds from, from whence they had come in Europe, mm -hmm. that no matter how much ambition you had, it wasn't going to move you out of the feudalist system or it wasn't right. going to transition you from a commoner to an aristocrat. That, that in, the, in those previous eras, it simply wouldn't have been an option. That, I mean, that's true. And I, th I think that, that sense you know, certainly seems to have lingered for a number of generations in, these, in some of these families, um, that sense of urgency. It, it does, it, it, and I think sense of urgency is, a, is an excellent turn of phrase for the, the intensity that, that these men pursued destiny, uh, mm -hmm. that, they, that they pursued the idea that they, there really was a sense they were, they were creating something grand. Mm -hmm. and, 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 they, and they did. Yes, and I, you know, tur turning back the page for a moment, uh, someone who's a larger than life personality who's um, peripheral to this story but keeps popping up in various aspects is Andy Jackson. And, yeah. you know, a huge. You don't, get much big, you don't get much bigger personality than Andrew Jackson. No, no. And you, and you walk in the foyer at the, at the Hermitage, and the first thing that you are met with is the, the entire telling of Telemachus. The, the, the Odyssey of Telemachus, the story of Telemachus from, from Greek myth in the French imported wallpaper that is floor to ceiling and no two panels are alike. Uh, <laughs> Just a bit of a statement. <laughs> like the, the, and these were individuals who were often well-versed in Greek, in classical literature of, of Greece. They were familiar with the ideas. They were following these ideals of great heroism and grandeur in, mm -hmm. in what they were doing. And, and, and ironic, I think but ironically, Andrew Jackson was viewed as a country bumpkin when he got to Washington. Right, right, which I, I still think he was a, I, I still think that he had to um, 
play some of that just for effect. Well, he, he, he did. That's what got him elected. And it certainly was not the only president to ever have done that. So um, there's, there's a little bit of, of, of hope in the back of my mind. I know it's not possible, but that, that somewhere in the, 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 the open entertaining quarters of the, of the White House, there's still a little bit of, of Andy Jackson's inaugural thousand pound wheel of cheese that somehow is uh, you know, stuck under a floorboard somewhere <laughs> well perhaps until it, perhaps until they basically gutted it and, and redid it in the Truman administration <laughs> yeah maybe they scraped it off of the floor <laughs> it's a it's a hope it's uh, it speaking of mythos, it is uh, that's that's my mythos. Uh, Andy Jackson, Andy Jackson's cheese is still part of. Anyway, I've seen a thousand pound block of cheese. It's impressive. <laughs> I don't even want to know where. <laughs> But speaking of Andy Jackson, um, the the next the next character in this march from the Ozarks to Texas is Davy Crockett, who certainly had his uh, ins and outs with Jackson. Yes, yes, he did. Um, strong ties, of course, to Texas, but also strong ties. Um, to Arkansas. Yes. Of, of course, he was, you know, um, you know, he, he was from Tennessee and Kentucky, basically. Spent time in uh, Louisiana as well. Actually, there's a story that he relates, uh, ironically, of encountering um, a wild man or, or Sasquatch uh, around Shreveport. That is interesting. Mm -hmm. I think that is extremely interesting. And I love the mm, sort of pre-1950s records of what we would today call cryptids. Yes. Um, and of course, he spent a lot of his life actually uh, making a living bear hunting. So my guess is he probably knew it wasn't a bear. I think that's very fair. I think that's mm -hmm. very fair indeed. There's a great quote um from Davy Crockett reportedly um that he was uh, stated at a banquet a Little Rock banquet in which he said uh if I could rest anywhere it would be in Arkansas where the men are of the real half horse half alligator breed such as grow nowhere else on the face of the universal earth but just around the backbone of North America <laughs> Boy, you almost thought he was talking about Texas there. <laughs> um, he was born in, in 1786. And at the age of 13, mm -hmm. he ran away from home and didn't mm -hmm. come back for 30 months. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's gumption. It, it is. It is. Um, 
he enlisted as a volunteer in the Indian Wars from 1813 to 1815, and he saw action in Alabama and Florida, and moved around quite a bit in Tennessee uh, with his family. And what was initially quite close with, as you mentioned, Andy Jackson. Yes, uh, actually, um, uh, served under Jackson. He was also in the Creek War, as Houston was as well. Yes. Um, you know, he uh, was in Congress from Tennessee in, in the late 1820s, and um, he, he fell out with Jackson in part over the Indian issues, um, but they butted heads on quite a few things, ironically. But uh, the, the famous assassination attempt on uh, Andrew Jackson uh, where it's at the Capitol and um, man comes out and tries to shoot him and Jackson famously beats him with his cane. Um, Davy Crockett actually uh, was uh, one of the couple of men who uh, uh, wrestled the man to the floor and saving Jackson as well. So um, he was pinned down to the floor when Jackson beat him with the cane. But uh, <laughs> But uh, e even though they were political foes, uh, Debbie Crockett helped stop the assassination. So, right, and you know they knew each other. They were both from Tennessee, right? There, there's now the legend of Davy Crockett has gone through a number of iterations, mm -hmm. but it it started. Um, really, it appears to have started during Crockett's political career. It it did, and um, you know, and he was really made out to be, you know, sort of this folksy backwoodsman, which he really wasn't. Um, but he he did wear the the the, the coonskin cap in Washington, fitting the bill, kind of as you said, um, kind of just same way that Jackson did. Um, but um, ironically, it, his rise to folk status kind of makes me think of Wild Bill Hickok and how he became the first legend of the Old West because of Harper's Weekly. Well, in 1831, a play was written, The Lion of the West, which later on there's, there's a book, and I can't remember who wrote it, named The Lion of the West about Crockett. The play never names him specifically, but um, most people watching it thought it was him. And then um, he was savvy enough to, again, he had lots of ups and downs with money, just right. as some of these other folks did. And he saw opportunity with this play and then wrote an autobiography. Um, and um, may and actually helped his family out in that regard, although it was only a couple of years before he died that that happened. And, and again, there's there's this sense of oh, living big and living fast. Yes, um, and and uh, that certainly. Um, 
kind of kind of fit Davy Crockett, but he uh, uh, ultimately when he decided to go to Texas, he he made his way from Tennessee via Arkansas, stopped in a you know a uh, number of places and was there for a while and and, and as you mentioned, one of his speeches or one of his statements there about Arkansas. Uh, ironically, uh, some of his family, his, his children and grandchildren stayed in Arkansas and Crockett's Bluff is actually named after his grandson. Yes, and, uh, I, and, it, and it's on the White River. Mm -hmm. It is, yeah. It's, it's um, southeast of Little Rock, but it's on the White River. I and, uh, and uh, but as you mentioned, you know, his his myth has, has gone through different incarnations. And this is another one that we have to really credit Disney with. Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I figured I'd let you talk about Disney. Uh, I think that's very fair. Well, you know, Best Parker all the way. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and Jed Clampett, a much younger Jed Clampett. Yeah. Uh, but I think that something that, that I think is important it, it is it is easy to dismiss the stories because in so many cases from the late 1820s all the way into the 1960s so many of these stories are historically inaccurate they, they are that said I think that the the myths surrounding the individual or inspired by the individual resonated with a variety of, of generations. I mean, mm -hmm. of uh, 140 years worth of generations um, for real reasons. I think mm -hmm. that it, it embodied uh, a, a number of important archetypes and that that embodiment, while the myth may, might be fiction, I think mm -hmm. the the resonation, the 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 resonance of the story was real. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea yeah. of these larger than life characters. Oh, I, I agree, and 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 Crockett definitely was, and was very outspoken. Um, you know, ironically, sort of the myth that you know, he didn't write himself in his autobiography, you know, came from the Alamo. Um, and ironically, he was only in Texas three months before the Alamo. So he really wasn't there that long. But, yeah. and for those that aren't familiar, really the, 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 the reason that the Alamo happened is um, basically a division of opinion the commander at the Alamo, um, the American commander, didn't want to listen to orders from Sam Houston. Yeah. And Sam Houston, and again, I think this goes back to the military career, he realized you're not going to, this isn't going to work. He told him not, not to uh, engage and to retreat. Mm -hmm. And they ignored orders. Yes, yes. And um, so, uh, of course, the legend comes down through time, perpetrated in part by Disney, 
that you know Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie die in a, basically a hail of bullets, taking out as many Mexicans as they can, you know, hold up in a little room. And um, it didn't go, it doesn't appear that it really went that way, um, particularly with Crockett. Although to be perfectly honest, as far as a large personality and everything, going out in a hail of bullets in a suicidal mission is one thing. But I think the, the account that we have that's probably the most accurate in some ways is more larger than life. And that comes from, and there's two actually. There's one, one man that survived from the American side who told his tale later. And then the diary of one of the Spanish officers' wives. And it came, it came up for public auction in 1975. And that was the first time it was revealed. And she, had, she was there, she was on site and she tells what happened. And basically that at, at the end of the fighting, the survivors, the American survivors are taken to a lieutenant of Santa Ana's. Mm -hmm. And that there's there's several of my, there's like of around 10 left. And Santa Ana specifically is looking for Davy Crockett because he is well known, etc. And the account is that the officer, uh, the lieutenant um, inquires, you know, if, one of them is Davy Crockett, and um, that he says, you know, I'm Crockett, and he tells him to get on his knees because they're going to execute them, and that Crockett just refuses to kneel, and they shoot him. Yes. Which, to be perfectly honest, I think that fits the larger-than-life personality even better. It does. It does. And, and I think that there, there's a, uh, an, an interesting point of sort of internal, you know, introspection and analysis that these men who became myth in mm -hmm. the American story were men. They were, had plenty of issues. As is as is evidenced by everything, <laughs> in some cases their trail of creditors uh, to uh, um, unhappy family members, um, misplaced <laughs> spouses, uh, <laughs> a wide variety of issues. Um, I, I think that it's it's crucially important to consider and accept the the mythos. As, as its own weather system, so to speak, as its own cultural weather system, that, that these things spoke to individuals and perhaps even continue to speak to individuals in powerful and important ways. Yes. And that it's important not, it's important that you have to look at the myth separately from the men, but it is, I think, very beneficial to see the myth for the importance of it, not to just readily uh, dismiss it 
thing. Oh, that that's not historically accurate. We throw it away. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but as is already noted, as you've already noted very eloquently, in so many cases, the the real life accounts uh, surrounding not just surrounding these men, but what these men did are are at times more impactful than the folklore. That's true. Um, and I, and you're right too. Both both are important, I think, in our larger narrative of our history. Now, I guess what what one is sort of one of those big myths is Jim Bowie. It is. It is. And his knife. And his knife. <laughs> which has a story all its own tied to the Ozarks. That it does. Uh, one that is continuing to this day, which I find really, really quite beautiful, especially from an artisanship standpoint. Mm -hmm. That, uh, but Jim Bowie, James Bowie, um, was perhaps one of the most colorful and perhaps less egalitarian characters uh, in comparison to, to men like Stephen Austin um, or Sam Houston. No, in, in, in a very real sense, he would have fit in the Rogue Gallery. Yes. In, in Despite <laughs> his myth. <laughs> yes. And, and probably lives above and beyond his, the, the myths associated with him. Um, he was born in 1796 mm -hmm. in, in Kentucky. Of course, he died on March 6th, 1836 at the Alamo. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, but just his, you know, initial introduction, um, American pioneer, slave smuggler, trader, and soldier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not to mention partners with uh, the pirate Jean Lafitte. Yes, I'm particularly interested. <laughs> in, which, in, uh, which, of course, is a, another connection to Andy Jackson, um, because um, Lafitte basically saved Jackson's bacon in New Orleans. <laughs> oh, New Orleans. Yes. Yes, he did. <laughs> and. And, and again, you know, we, we talk about that we see this, um, you know, immediate six degrees of separation in the, the old west of Missouri around and immediately following the Civil War in regards mm -hmm. to the Texas Revolution and things like the, from the, essentially the War of 1812 to the Texas Revolution. We see this all over again. Oh, look, everybody seems to know everybody. Yes, there, there's a connection pretty much everywhere. Um, you know, um, now uh, Jim Bowie's father was involved with, uh, with a raid into Texas uh, um, in the early 1800s. And um, then um, the father dies around 1820 and uh, leaves slaves, horses, and cattle to James and his brother Rezin. And 
they're building an estate down in Louisiana. And that's when they get in, they get into land speculation, which gets them into Arkansas. Yeah. They start speculating land in Arkansas. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, finances being what they were at the time and not always having money to do these things, they were creative at getting credit. And how they did that was partnering with Lafitte. Correct. <laughs> when in doubt, partner with a French pirate. Exactly. And so, um, and of course, Lafitte has, you know, um, sort of a, Anti, anti-hero folk status in Texas now, uh, particularly in the Galveston area. Um, and um, it, you know, people are still trying to find exactly where his hideout was on which island, et cetera, you know, et cetera. And his supposed um, treasure that's buried. Well, yeah. so Jim Bowie would go to Galveston um, make trips to Lafitte's um, compound and where Lafitte was bringing in slaves and basically they they would then take them to the custom house where they would be sold and then they would buy them back and um, this is how they uh, collected money and they, and they say in, in the 1820s um, amounted to about $65,000 that they acquired to buy land. And they did a lot of that in Arkansas, but that didn't really go too well for them. Right. Because again, they were purchasing land from the Spanish. (laughs) Here we go again, (laughs) another thing. (laughs) And then they were reselling it to people. Mm -hmm. And so, by the time you get in, into the later 1820s, um, there are a lot of people who are figuring out they can't prove they own the land. And um, so finally, uh, United, the federal government had finally said the state courts could decide these land claims that were in the Louisiana Purchase. So there were over 120 land uh, claims that were filed against uh, Jim Bowie and his brother Resin. Ouch. And then, um, let's see, 126 actually, who uh, from people who had purchased land in the form of the former Spanish grants from the Bowie brothers. And uh, a lower court had initially confirmed most of the claims, they were reversed in 1831 after further research showed that the land had never belonged to the buoys and that the original documentation had been forged. Yes. And the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the decision. (laughs) It it is a little bit ugly right there. I will. And then, but then, and, you know, maybe having associated with pirates might have lent to all of this, so when the purchasers, you know, decided that they would try to sue the buoys directly for recompensance, they discovered that all of the court documents were missing. 
Yes. So they couldn't sue. No, right. <laughs> so, not you know, a, a chapter that often is overlooked in in the myth. It it is, uh, which I think is unfortunate because it's fascinating. I think there's mm -hmm. certainly great cautionary tales in that, but I think it also speaks to the just the the wildness of this frontier, mm -hmm. and and the the fact that to a certain degree that it was creating this environment that if you could get by with it it went it was going to go right and, and and actually it's at this it's that same time period in 1827 that Jim Bowie became famous as a knife fighter right and uh, by killing know, he killed the sheriff yes but not the deputy <laughs> <laughs> with a very special and suddenly very marketable knife style style yes um and from all all accounts it appears that he was lucky that he lived through it because um uh the sheriff had uh, run him through with his sword through the chest yes and and shot him <laughs> yeah and this is this is 1827 uh the sandbar fight and from if memory serves um Bowie and uh the sheriff were actually essentially witnesses to a an existent duel that's on, my that i i believe so um i believe on again on the on a on an unclaimed island um, slash sandbar near Natchez in the Mississippi. Right. Well, that that's true that that had happened, but they they had their own argument because Bowie yes. had supported the sheriff's opponent in the election, mm -hmm. and um, who had who was a banker, who then turned down a loan application of Bowie. Yes. Yeah, yes. probably for land speculation, <laughs> or I'm sure it was to repay the the, the good folks in Oklahoma or in Arkansas. Um, but um, um, so um, they had they had an argument, and the sheriff fired a shot at Bowie, and um, then um, that's when Bowie decided to start carrying a knife. Um, and then they ended up attending a, a duel. Uh, Bowie was, I guess, second to someone else, to Wells, and, and uh, Wright was a supporter of the opponent. Um, I, I love the fact that the, <laughs> the, the duelists each fire shot, both missed, both yep. resolved their duel with a handshake, and then a massacre takes place immediately following yes um they began fighting Bowie was shot in the hip and uh he drew a knife and charged his attacker who hit him over the head with an empty pistol breaking the pistol knocking Bowie to the ground um then the sheriff uh, or no uh, yeah the sheriff um shot at Bowie and missed 
who returned fire and possibly hit the sheriff. Then the sheriff, uh, oh yeah, that's that's when he drew his sword and impaled Jim Bowie. <laughs> and when he attempted to retrieve his blade by putting his uh, foot on Bowie's chest and tagging, Bowie pulled him down and, disembow and disemboweled him with his knife. Yes. And we'll, we'll get into the importance of the knife shortly. Right. But the, the newspapers picked up the story, named it the Sandbar Fight, described Bowie's fighting in detail. Um, and Bowie becomes considered the most dangerous man pretty much anywhere around. Right. Uh, the most dangerous man in, in uh, 1827. Um, <laughs> And um, so then the story, uh, you know, and we still call the style of knife a Bowie knife. Um, yes. and, and it's still contested exactly. It, is it a separate knife than an Arkansas toothpick? Yes. And uh, the suggestion is it, it is. Um, it is now. It is now, anyway. They, you know, there, 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 there are some that say that at that time period there wasn't much difference between them, mm -hmm. but who knows? But they, but the the term Arkansas toothpick uh, for that style, for the style knife uh, predates Bowie. Um, then, then the question is, you know, did Jim Bowie design it or did the blacksmith? Um, yes. James, James Black. Black, who's has a very interesting story. Ironically, many of the Bowie family members actually say it was his brother Resin who who designed the knife. Interesting, um, but, but neither made it. But neither made it. Um, in fact, it said Resin's grandchildren said that Resin only supervised his blacksmith, who was the, the designer of the knife. And but that the information I have doesn't specify whether or not that would have been James Black, but you know, ostensibly most people credit Black, who has a, a pretty fascinating story himself. He does. There's there's one more footnote that I wanted to add to Bowie. Sure. Uh, because we 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 see him as this essentially I mean, historical record shows him as a scoundrel essentially a rogue yeah. um and <clears throat> of course he he passes from history with his death at the alamo um his infamous bowie knife uh, presumably being taken as a war prize by someone um, right but it's it's never recovered right and bowie moved to texas in 1830 Mm -hmm. uh, in, in 1831, uh, he married the daughter of the provincial vice governor. Yeah. Again, another thing. Yes. Um, Usura uh, Maria de Veramende. Um, and in, in, uh, in two years, the, and the evidence suggests that they're actually extremely happy together. In two years, they have two children um word gets of an epidemic coming through he insists that his wife and his young children uh essentially evacuate 
and, and move out to the country. Despite that, uh, the, the cholera epidemic in 1833 uh, takes his wife, his children, and his in-laws. Yeah, he loses everyone. Everyone that, that it, you know, presumably everyone that he cared about uh, dies in the single epidemic. And in his grief, he begins drinking heavily. His health declines and his anger at the actions of the faltering, faltering Mexican government increase. That these very human experiences, very tragic human experiences, also begin to play a part, not only in the mythos uh, that would create the man Jim Bowie, that, that history or folklore would recall, uh, but also likely pushed him into his decisions um, at the Alamo. Well, that's that, that's very very possible. I mean, and he had gone as, as far as renouncing his American citizenship um, when he married. Um, you know, he um, he then um, you know got permission to. Uh, from the Mexican government to invade Indian territory to search for, you know, the, uh, the lost, uh, lost uh, Amagra mine. And it did not really go well. No. Uh, then his family dies. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it appears from most accounts that um, although, again, the myth is that, you know, almost the Jim Bowie and David Crockett were holed up in the same room and died the last two men standing. Um, it appears that Bowie was killed outside the Alamo earlier in the action, and um, uh, it's not real clear exactly what happened. Um, there's no clear account. Um, but, um, again, that certainly some, yeah, if someone realized who he was, I'm sure the knife was taken as a prize. Yes. Um, but, um, and, and so, uh, it, it does, it does appear that having lost everything, he became more bold in, disregarding hazards and danger. Agreed, <clears throat> agreed. And the, the actual origins, it, it, it has to be said that the actual origins of the Bowie knife um, are shrouded in interpretation. They are, um, but, you know that a lot. You know a lot of historians on the subject do uh, credit James Black for making the knife. There's yes. even some. There's even some accounts that it was. You know, one that he had that uh, he rediscovered Damascus steel. Yes, and, uh, and I guess. We should say, I mean, he he has almost a you know certainly this backstory that is amazing. He um, 
ran away from home uh, on the East Coast when he was very young, um, said to be because of difficulties with the stepmother. Yes, um, Hackensack, New Jersey, and he runs away yeah. from home at the age of eight. A age of eight, yes, and becomes a an apprentice, silver metal apprentice. Yes. Um, works at a number you know, of years, and once he comes out of his apprenticeship, um, he sees the writing on the wall with uh, demand and, and, and British availability of silver that he decides not to set up shop himself, ultimately comes west, ends up in Arkansas. Yes. And, and, um, and interestingly enough, specifically Washington, Arkansas, which is now yeah. a park. Yeah. Um, and, and it, quite a few stories seem to have come out of there. So, um, yeah, you, a, a more than tumultuous relationship with his future father-in-law. Yeah, well, he, he goes to work for him mm -hmm. and is soon known as the best blacksmith in the country. Yes, it's, it's pretty evident that his his being apprenticed as a silversmith um, for, for many years really uh, fell into, you know, into that skill set. Uh, he goes yeah. to work for a blacksmith by the last name of Shaw there in yeah. Washington, Washington, Arkansas. Um, and <laughs> also has the misfortune of falling in love with Shaw's daughter, Anne. Shaw's. Well, ultimately, it's mis misfortune. Although they had they had a happy marriage and children, and um, but then she passes away. Yes, and where this where the where this ultimately lands in the in summer of eighteen thirty nine, uh, James Black falls ill. He's helpless in bed, and his very aging and vindictive former father-in-law. Well, and also he, he, he then also had hired his brother-in-law, Anne's brother. So not only did he marry the man's daughter, but he hired his son. And so I think he was bitter for both reasons. Yes. For whatever reason. And, and later became, went out on his own as a blacksmith and became a competitor. Yes. So while he's ill, uh, Shaw, his, his former father-in-law, uh, comes into his house and attacks him. And, and beats him with a club. And um, apparently the family dog attacks Shaw and gets him to, to, to leave. But Bla um, Blatt's eyesight was permanently damaged. Yes. Um, and that leads him on a trip back east to look for, to find doctors who might be able to help him to no right. luck. He comes back home only to find now how this happened. I'd love to know more of this part of the story of how he managed to do this, but had sold Black's land off in, in yeah. his property and ran away with proceeds. Not only did he do that, but he ran away from his own shop. So, right. um, so now Black is destitute 
ill health and spent the remainder of his life being taken care of by others. And when he died, the secrets to his knife making died with him. Right. Um, is he did attempt in his very later years to share his knife making secrets, but at this point, um, at a very old age and, uh, and in very poor health, he was unable to remember the processes. Yeah. <clears throat> the uh, first attribution of the Bowie knife, Bowie knife to, uh, to Jim Black or James Black uh, occurs on December 8th, uh, 1841 in an article from the Washington, Arkansas Telegraph. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's, that is surprisingly uh, pretty solid overall, but the, the primary takeaway, which really starts, I think, speaking into this uh, folkloric mythos is the idea that James Black's skill was unparalleled mm -hmm. and that the magic, if you will, uh, of the craftsmanship was, became the, this physical item almost became a totem of, of American history. Well, and if he did indeed make the, the buoy number one, mm -hmm. it did. Um, and um, th there are tales of, you know, him marking knives that way. Um, yeah. So uh, it, it really does, it really does make you wonder. Um, but you know, just the thought of rediscovering Damascus steel is just amazing. If you, if for anyone that had wonders, it's you know, it's a secret that has been found and lost multiple times. Yes, which Ooh. makes you wonder if we're supposed to really know it. <laughs> and it, it, there is a. I think a fantastical or magical quality that's associated with the lore. Yes. And something that really stood out to me, although this is Hollywood fiction, but <clears throat> there's a, a 1956 film uh, titled The Iron Mistress that, uh, that stars Alan Ladd and Virginia Mayo. But in it, Black is depicted forging Jim Bowie's knife from iron that has been extracted from a meteorite. Yes, yes. Um, um, and um, now there are there are daggers that have been made from meteorite, but it's extremely difficult to do and it's extremely expensive. Um, which, you know, was it forged from meteorite? Probably not. No, I very unlikely. was it was it some kind of Damascus blade? or Damascus style blade, not impossible. I, the thing that I, I think is powerful and fascinating is the, it, it, to me, it really goes beyond just simply folklore, but the idea that, and, and the fact that there are these stories associated with the knife mm -hmm. and the three, three, well, I suppose really four key elements 
of this, the knife, from an archetypal standpoint, the knife is a sword. The, the knife yeah. is Excalibur. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it has two possible um, mystical points of origin. Is it, is it Damascus? Is it a meteorite? There's something powerful, uh, magical, resonating about this. And then yeah. lastly, it is lost to history. That's true. There is quite a parallel there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, <clears throat> the, and I think that, you know, that the, these things, these things are important. Um, now you can, you know, also take up the, the mantle that as this legend grew, as it resonated throughout uh, American, contemporary American society in the mid 19th century, um, there was uh, uh, a huge push for Bowie knives, uh, so much right. so that uh, blacksmiths in Britain began mass producing them and shipping them to America for sale. Yeah. So, you know, the, it, it also speaks, but at the same time, uh, the, uh, uh, the sacred well sites of Western Europe functioned essentially as tourist destinations uh, complete with souvenir shops. And we're talking the Middle Ages. Very, very true. Very, very true. So, so there, there's, <laughs> you know, some, I think, I think something that we, I, I think sort of the, the two sides um, of the inexplicable but inescapable human psyche is that we want to be able to touch magic. Oh, yeah. And touch the legend. Touch the legend. But we also want to be able to buy a piece of it and take it home with us. Always better. <laughs> Preferably one with a magnet on the back so we can just stick it on the refrigerator. <laughs> so everyone can see it. Absolutely. It's what I do. <laughs> well all of the all of these uh these figures that all these people that we've talked about got us from the ozarks to the alamo yes they did and their stories in some sense end at the alamo but they do. but not necessarily the end either but no uh, that might be I a Oh, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, there, so many of these men's lives ended at the Alamo. Their, their paths crossed the Ozarks, in some cases, were, were intimately associated with the Ozarks. And even for individuals like Stephen Austin, who did not die at the Alamo, but would pass shortly thereafter and, and pass into history. But in terms of their, their, the impact of these men's lives and and then the beginning in many cases of their legend actually began on march 6th 1836 and yes and and it continued to this day they continue to resonate impact us in unique ways and really forged a path for a new generation of uh, of americans who in many cases would also have extraordinary ties 
to the Ozarks and, uh, and, and would forge new legends uh, in their own right in the coming years of the 19th century, particularly as uh, the Civil War approaches. Very true. And so um, we'll end with Almo today, but yes. uh, we'll pick up the story. And don't forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Dark Ozarts to everyone. And on the next episode, we're going to be discussing the Ozarks connections again with Texas, as well as the possibility of a variety of paranormal encrypted connections. And uh, we do invite you to catch the next Dark Ozarks podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. Thank you to everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks. <laughs>